you to take your Bible and we will turn there. That's Daniel chapter 2. And while this chapter deals with certain personalities, as we will see, it also deals with two inanimate objects. It deals with a statue and it deals with a stone. And they actually become the key characters of the chapter, although there are a lot of personalities. Now we're going to pick up at Daniel chapter 2 and verse 1, and if you'll notice, this chapter has 49 verses, and we're going to do the impossible, we're going to go through 49 verses in 35 minutes. It's the longest chapter in the book of Daniel. Now let me give you a little bit of background for those of you who were not here last week. Daniel and his three friends have gone through an apprenticeship program to become wise men. That means advisors to the king. And they have graduated at the top of their class. And thus they've been chosen to serve in the king's administration. They're not going to be in the State Department. They're not going to be in the Department of Defense. They're going to be right there in the Oval Office. But just because they've cho been chosen for a position in the Oval Office doesn't mean that they have seniority. They are at the bottom of the totem pole. For example, you have a Secretary of State. And then you have an associate or an assistant secretary of state. And then you have an assistant undersecretary of state. And it keeps going down and down and down. And that's the way it is in government. It's the same way in, in college. You'll have a professor and then an associate professor and an assistant professor and an instructor and so on and so forth. Now, the instructor may actually be more intelligent than the professor who has seniority. Isn't that right? And Daniel is smarter than any of the other king's advisors, but he does not have seniority at this point. So you need to understand that as we go into this chapter. So let's start off at verse 1, and we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar's prophetic dream. Look at verse 1. Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. And his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Now like many world leaders, Nebuchadnezzar suffers from insomnia. I don't know what it would be like to be a president of a, of a nation, but I imagine you spend a lot of nights up worrying about things that are going on. But Nebuchadnezzar's insomnia is not only because of the things that are going on in the nation, but he's having nightmares. Notice in verse 1, the word dreams is in the plural. You see that? This is not a one-night affair. He doesn't only have one nightmare that's over with that plagues him, but he has a reoccurring nightmare. It happens tonight. When he goes to sleep tomorrow night, he has that same nightmare. The next night, the same nightmare. And it plagues him even during his working hours. So the scripture says that his spirit is troubled even during having over and over again and he thinks that it spells doom for him and he's very concerned so he turns to his advisors look at verse 2 then the king gave the command to call the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans his advisors to tell the king his dreams and so they came and they stood before the king and the king said to them 
I've had a dream. Notice here it's singular. Verse 1, it's plural. Why? Because it's the same dream occurring over and over and over and over again. I've had a dream, he says. And my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans, who were the spokesmen for the group, spoke to the king in Aramaic. That's the native language of the Babylonians. And they said, Long live the king! O king, live forever! Which is the way they had to address the king whenever they came into his presence. That's like we'd say, Long live the queen! You've seen that in uh, British circles. And then notice what they say at the end of verse 4. Tell the servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. So these occult advisors are ready and willing to tell the king what his dream is all about. Now we know from ancient records that occult advisors to a king had dream manuals which were arranged in subject matter, sort of arranged uh, by subject so that if the king, let's say, dreamed about a crow, they could get their manual, go down, find the word letter C, find the word crow, and then next to it would tell what it means when you dream about a crow. We have things like that now, don't we? You can go to the bookstore, and you can find books on dreams and tells you what your dreams mean. And Back in those days, they had manuals, and they did the same thing. And so they said, well, tell us your dream, and we'll give you the interpretation. But then the king throws them a curve. Look what he says in verse 5. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you will be cut to pieces. So they say, well, King, tell us your dream and we'll give you an interpretation. So you tell me my dream. Yeah, I can tell you the dream and you can come up with some stupid interpretation. Anybody could do that. He says, I want the interpretation, but you tell me the dream. I'm not going to tell you the dream. Let's find out if you really have power or not. And if you don't, there are consequences. There are negative consequences and there will be positive consequences. Negative if you're wrong, positive if you're right. Now, what are the consequences? Well, look. He says, if you don't tell me the dream and its interpretation, number one, you'll be cut to pieces. That doesn't sound too good, does it? That's a, you're going to be, in other words, you're going to be put to death. And number two, your houses will be made an ash heap. The King James says your ashes will be made of what? A dunghill. That means we're going to turn your house into an outhouse. And this was the way that people were humiliated in those days. They were kicked out of their houses, and their houses were turned into public restrooms for the community. And he says, that's what's going to happen to you if you can't come up with the dream and the interpretation. That's the negative consequences. How about the positive consequences? Look at verse 6. However... <clears throat> If you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great 
honor. So it's to your advantage that you can come up with a dream. Now, I remember a number of years ago, the amazing Randy, who was a magician and an exposer of fake psychics, challenged all the psychics in America, didn't matter who they were, and this is when Gene Dixon lived and all those people, he challenged them, he said, look, if you can pass a test proving that you have psychic ability, I'll give you $100,000 cash right on the spot. And one guy said, okay, I'll do it. I can find oil in the ground through the use of a dousing rod. He said, great, if you can do that, I'll give you $100,000 right on the spot. So what Randy did is he got an acre, five acres of land, and he took barrels of oil, maybe four or five barrels, and he buried them in different places on this five-acre plot, didn't tell the guy where it was, and he said, okay, come with your little, you know, dousing rod, and the guy came, and guess how many barrels of oil he found? None, and he was embarrassed in front of the whole nation. But guess what? If he was right, a hundred thousand bucks. And so that's what the king said. Negative consequences if you're wrong, humiliation and death to you, and second of all, if you're right, gifts, rewards, and honor. And then, then what he does is he challenges them right in the middle of verse 6. He says, therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. So guess what they do? They say, oh, that's no problem. We're wise men. We're magicians. We're astrologers. We'll tell you the dream, right? Oh, no. They make an appeal to the king. And this is appeal number one. Look at verse 7. They answered again and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream. And we'll give its interpretation. So they didn't accept the king's challenge, did they? Why do you think they didn't accept the king's challenge? Because they don't know the dream. If he gives them a dream, they can come up with any crazy interpretation. So they appeal one more time. You come on, king, you know the rules. You give us the dream and we'll give you the interpretation. <laughs> Verse 8. And the king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time. You're trying a stall tactic here. You're trying to, you know, weasel your way out of this. You're trying to gain time because you see my decision is what? Firm. You know that if you can't come up with the dream, it's curtains for you. So you're trying a stall tactic right now. So the king does not give in to their, their appeal. And then look at verse 9. He gives them an ultimatum. He says, if you do not know the dream, if you don't make that dream known to me, there's only one decree for you. Guess what that is? The old outhouse decree. That's right. <laughs> the old turning from Linda. <laughs> All get the limbs off of your body decree. That's the only decree that's for you. Right in the middle of verse 9, look what he says. For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the time has changed. And he says, I know what you're trying to do. You want me to give you the dream, and then you are going to give me a big, lying, cockamamie story of what that dream means. And that's what you're after. 
And so the king's not going to do that. Notice he says, you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the time is changed. You're just hoping that my dreams will stop occurring and I'll forget about it and, uh, you know, the crisis has passed or whatever. My anger abates. You're just waiting for the time to change and that I won't have this decree. But in verse 9, at the end of verse 9, he says, that's not going to happen. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. So now, they say, okay, King, here's your dream, right? No, they don't do that. They make a second appeal. And look at the appeal now in verse 10. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. They appeal to his reason. Come on, can't be reasonable. No one can know what you dreamed in your mind. But if you tell us a dream, we can interpret it. So they appeal to his reason. Come on, no one on There's not one man on earth that can do that. And not only that, then they appeal to his guilt. Look at look what they say. Therefore, no king, no ruler has ever asked such a thing of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. What do you think you're doing? No one asked that. They're trying to make him feel bad because he's asked them for the nature of the dream. And then look what they do. Verse 11. They say, it's a difficult thing that the king requests. And there's no other who can tell it to the king except who? The gods. Now the gods know your dream. But then look at this last frame. Whose dwelling is not with flesh. So, King, it's not that your dream can't be known. The gods know it. Marduk knows it. The god Bel knows it. All the gods know it. But they don't live here on earth. They live in the heavens. And so they don't reveal people's dreams. Now, what they do reveal is interpretation. So they appeal, a second appeal to the king. And so they're blaming the gods. The gods know the dream, but they're not revealing it to anybody. So then the king explodes. Verse 12. For this reason, the king was angry. And to make sure you understand what that means, it says, and very furious. And gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. And so the decree went out and they began killing the wise men and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them too. So here's old Daniel. He didn't even have an audience with the king at this point, but he's going to end up being killed because these guys are a bunch of fakes. Now, what's the writer want us to grasp at this point? In verses 1 through 13, if if I ask you to summarize, what's he want you to grasp? What's the couple lessons that he wants you to grasp? I think one of the first things you would say is that Nebuchadnezzar is not a nice guy. Would you grasp that? Yeah, he's not a very nice guy. And the second thing I think that the writer wants us to grasp is that these psychics are phonies. They're fakes. And those are the two things that he wants you to get 
out of verses 1 through 13. So we're going to call 1 through 13, Nebuchadnezzar's prophetic dream concealed. It's hidden from the wise men. Now this next section, which is going to cover verses 14 through 23, we're going to call this Nebuchadnezzar's prophetic dream revealed. And we're going to see that it's revealed to Daniel. So let's start at verse 14. Okay, verse 14. Then, with counsel and wisdom, Daniel, now remember they've sought, they're hunting for Daniel and his companions. Then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch. Who's he? Well, it tells you. The captain of the king's guard who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. So this is the man in charge. You're rounding up all the king's advisors and putting them to death. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. Now what we have here is this man finds Daniel and his companions, and he said, okay, you're under arrest. And Daniel uses, it says in verse 14, counsel and wisdom. He doesn't beg for his life. He says, well, let me ask you a question. What's, what's so, why are you rounding us up? What, what's, what's the urgent matter? And the captain says that he tells Daniel what happened in the court of the king, and he tells him the decision that the king has made. He gives him an explanation. Then look at verse 16. So Daniel went in, and evidently he gets permission from the captain uh, to do this. Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. So he says to Ariok, he said, well, look, I, I, can, I think I can get this interpretation. The guy says, okay. He says, I put you to death. But I'm going to let you go in and talk to the king. And he goes in and he says, King, would you give me time? Now what makes this so remarkable is that's the very same thing that the wise men said. They wanted some extra time, didn't they? And the king wouldn't give them time. But when Daniel goes in, the king gives him time. Why is that? Because there's something different about Daniel. He's full of wisdom and he's full of counsel. And the king recognizes it. Now look at verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house. And he made, a he made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, that's his three friends, his companions, that, so that he tells them what the king was going to do, tells him about the king's dream and how he's going to put him to death. And he does it that, so that, in order that, they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret. He lets his friends in on it that together they can seek God and that God will reveal that secret dream. So, second of all, that, in order that, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Now, it's interesting that the Chaldeans are put to death and they're pleading with the king to give them time so that they won't be put to death. But when Daniel is confronted with death, he doesn't have to plead, he just goes to God. And he begins to pray to God that God will make sure that his life is spared. 
And in verses 18, in verses 17 and 18, you have a teenage prayer meeting. Now remember I told you Daniel was only about 17 when he was taken to Babylon, and so were his friends. So he's only about 19 or 20 years of age. And it's absolutely amazing that the king will listen to him at this point. But we actually have a teenage prayer meeting going on. And what we have in verse 19 is they begin to pray. And then look at, at verse 19. It says, Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. And evidently he has been praying throughout the night and suddenly it's like a light goes on in his mind and he sees a scene in front of his mind and he knows the king's dream. Just like that. Now, very interestingly, if you look at the first word in verse 19, it's the word then. Do you see that? And if you go back to verse 14, it says then. And then verse 17 says then. And verse 19 says Actually, in verse 15, in the middle of verse 15, it says, Then, then Arioch made a decision. Verse 17, then, and then verse 19, then. This is the mark of a good storyteller. The storyteller who's writing the book of Daniel is telling the story of what happened. He says, and then, and then, and then Daniel went in, and then Daniel went to his three friends, and then, then they had a prayer meeting. And the person who's reading the story says, and I wonder what then happened. <laughs> now we know what happened. Because at the end of chapter 1 it says Daniel lived during the reign of King Cyrus. Remember that from last week? We know that he's still around 70 years later. But in chapter 2 he's in danger of being put to death, isn't he? But we know that's not going to happen. And the mark of a good storyteller is the one who can tell you the end of the story up front and then hold your attention as he goes back and tells you the details. Remember the old Perry Mason television program? You knew what was going to happen. Perry Mason never loses a trial, does he? Uh, you knew that Perry Mason was going to win, didn't you? But what does, what does the writer do? He then tells you the story. And then what's going to happen? How's he going to win at the end? That's what the writer of the book of Daniel is doing. Same thing with Indiana Jones. You know he's going to escape at the end, don't you? But how is it going to happen? What are the details? Well, here's what happened. And then what happened? And then what happened? That's what the writer of Daniel is doing here. He's telling you what's happening. So we have this prayer meeting. And he reveals, God reveals the secret. We, he tells him what the dream is. But what is that dream? Well, he's not going to tell you yet. Because next Daniel has a praise meeting. Because he begins to praise God. Look at the end of verse 19. So Daniel blessed the Lord of heaven. He begins to thank God and praise God because God's revealed this dream. And he said, and he answered in verse 20, he praises God for six things. He said, blessed be the name of God forever. Why? Number one, for wisdom and might are his. Number two, and he changes the times and the seasons. God is in control of time. Three, he removes kings and he raises up kings. I praise you, God, because you control governments. See? He gives wisdom to the wise. God doesn't hide his wisdom. He shares his wisdom. 
knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. Who does he reveal them to? Well, he reveals them to his prophets. He knows what is in the darkness. He knows what happens when a man puts his head on the pillow at night and turns the light out. He knows what you're thinking in your mind. He knows what goes on in the darkness. And light dwells in God. Then Daniel says, and I thank you, verse 23, and I praise you, O God of my fathers, because you've given me wisdom and might. And now have made known to me what we've asked you. You've answered our prayer. For you made known unto us the king's demands. And so Daniel has been revealed, has been revealed to Daniel the king's dream. And now Daniel is going to reveal the dream to the king. He's going to give the king his answer. Look at verse 24. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch. <clears throat> you know who that was, right? The captain. Whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he said, I've got the answer for the king, Arioch. And so he went, Arioch went, and said thus to him, King, don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Or David says, don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. So Daniel says, I've been revealed, the secret's been revealed to me, get me to the king. And then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king, and he said thus to the king, I found a man among the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. Notice he takes credit for it. It's amazing, isn't it? It's human nature. He's going to take credit for just happening to stumble across this guy who says he can interpret the king's dream. And so guess what the king does? He pats the captain on the back and says, oh, you're a good man. No, he absolutely ignores the captain. And he looks right to Daniel. He says, okay, what's the story? Verse 26, the king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known unto me the dream which I've seen? Are you a phony like the rest? And it's interpretation. And Daniel begins to speak. And from verses 27 to verse 45, Daniel is doing all the speaking. So that's what you're going to have at this point. So look at verse 27. Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And Daniel now will draw a contrast between the occult advisors of the king who seek information from, through astrology and divination and Marduk and these false gods. And he's going to make a contrast between those people and those gods and the one true God of Israel, God Jehovah, who reveals secrets, and he is made known to King Nebuchadnezzar in that dream. What will be in the latter days? Your king, your your dream, King, 
has to do with the end times. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. Here's what you dreamt about. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. In other words, your dream has to do with the future. With the future. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I am more that I have more wisdom than anyone living. But God has chosen to reveal the secret to me for our sakes who make known the interpretation of the dream, in other words, so you won't kill us, and that you may know the thoughts of your heart, what they mean. And now he gives him the content of the dream. Now look what it says. O king, you are watching, and behold, a great image. This is what was in the dream. There was a great image, which means a large image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent. It was brilliant. It was a shining image. It was like the sun bounced off of the image. It was brilliant in its, in its appearance. Stood before you, and its form was awesome. Its form was terrifying. When you saw this image in your dream, it literally took away your breath. You went, what's that? And so he sees a great image in his dream. Okay? Now look what else. That's the general description of the king's dream. Now the specific description. Verse 32. This image's head was of fine gold. So it's an image of a of a man and had a head that was made of fine gold. Its chest and its arms were silver and its belly and its thighs of brass. Its legs of iron and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Now, this is the dream. He's seen a tremendous statue. And we think that the statue probably was something like 90 feet high, which would make it an unbelievable statue. In fact, he will tell us later about that. And it's made of certain metals. And I want you to notice that the value of the metal diminishes as it moves from top to bottom. Because the head is made of gold, but the feet are made of iron. And iron doesn't cost as much as gold, and so it diminishes in value, but the metals increase in strength as they go from top to bottom. The top is gold, and if you have pure gold, 24 karat gold, you can actually scrape 24 karat gold. I used to work in a jewelry manufacturing company. You know, just about that. You know, gold gets softer the, pu the purer it is. And 24 karat gold is very soft, but the feet are iron. And so its value diminishes from top to bottom, but its strength increases from top to bottom. 
And because gold is so heavy, this statue is top heavy. And it says the feet actually are composed of two things. And we see that some of one of the things is clay. So it's sort of like baked pottery. It's sort of like pottery. Some of the feet are made of pottery. And so this statue might is in danger of, tumble, of uh, crumbling. And so that's what he sees in the dream. Now look at verse 34. And you watched, in your dream, you watched the statue while a stone was cut without hands. And so suddenly, he starts seeing a great big rock that's being chiseled and cut. But there are no hands doing the work. And that's what he saw in his dream, in verse 34. Which, and look what this rock does in verse 34. Which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the dust, or the, and the gold, were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floor and the wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found and the stone that struck the image began to grow it became a great mountain and it filled the whole earth that's the dream so this stone is stronger than the head, the chest, the thighs, and the feet. Because, and it knocks the feet right out from under the statue. And then it's even able to crush iron, which means it's stronger than the iron. And it pulverizes the entire statue, and it just goes. And the wind just takes it away, carries it away. But the stone, the stone is the only thing left. And the stone begins to grow and begins to expand into a great mountain. And finally, it covers the entire earth. That is the dream that you had, Mr. President. Well, let me tell you something. It absolutely amazes the king. Now we're going to get the interpretation of the dream. Verse 36. You still with me? This is the dream. Now we will tell you the interpretation of it before the king. What does the dream mean? And he's going to say this. Each one of those metals represent a kingdom. Okay, Kingdom number one, verse 36. Verse 36, uh, verse 37. You, O king, are a king of kings. For the king of heaven, that's Jehovah, has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, wherever they are, he has given them into your hand. And he has made you ruler over them all. King, you are the head of gold. So when you see that head of gold, that's you, Nebuchadnezzar. 
That is the Babylonian Empire. That's all the land and all the kingdoms that you rule. And notice that God has given that to Nebuchadnezzar. If you ask Nebuchadnezzar how he became world ruler, he would say, through the force of my army, through the slyness of my thought. And Daniel says, no, no. It was all given to you by God. The same God who's revealed the dream to me is the one who has given you this kingdom. And God raises up kings, and he puts down kings, and he raises up presidents, and he puts down presidents, and you may not have voted for him, but guess what? It was God's choice for some reason. And that is a very important lesson to learn. Okay? Kingdom number two. Interpretation number two. You still with me? Verse 39. But after you shall arise another kingdom, look at this, inferior to yours. Now remember, the head was of gold and the chest was of what? Oh, silver is much inferior than gold. Gold is worth 40 times as much as silver. You can check that on the stock market any day, the commodities market. So here's a kingdom that's inferior to yours, but guess what? Silver is stronger than gold. And this kingdom is going to rise up and defeat you. And we know from history that the kingdom that rose up and defeated Babylon was the Medo-Persian kingdom or the Medo-Persian empire of which King Cyrus was indeed the ruler. And so that is the next kingdom. Okay? Keep going in verse 39. Kingdom number three. Then another, a third kingdom of bronze shall rule over all the earth. And so here we have bronze that's stronger than silver. And that kingdom defeats the Persian Empire. And that is the kingdom of Greece under Alexander the Great, who after he conquered the entire world at the age of 30, wept because there were no more worlds to conquer. He died when he was 33 years old in a drunken stupor because he didn't have anything else to do. His kingdom was fragmented between an Egyptian ruler and a Syrian ruler, and they fought for power of the Grecian Empire, and it too eventually fell. And then the fourth kingdom, in verse 40, the fourth kingdom, which now we're down to those legs and feet, shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and it shatters everything. Like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Every conservative commentary from John Calvin to Dr. Criswell say that this kingdom is the Roman Empire. And Josephus, the Jewish, Jewish, Jewish historian, when he interpreted Daniel, also said that the fourth kingdom was the Roman Empire in which... He lived. So we have the Roman Empire. And then look what he says in verse 41. Now he's interpreting what the statue means, what the dream means. Verse 41. Whereas you saw feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, 
this kingdom shall be divided. That's important. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it. Just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And guess what happened to the Roman Empire? It became divided between east and west. The eastern Roman Empire with its capital in Constantinople. And the western empire with the capital in Rome. And so we have a divided empire, and that was part of the prophecy, the part of the dream, look at verse 42, and as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. And that indeed happened. And as you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men. There's going to be intermarriage between the Romans and others. It's going to bring, eventually bring them down. And they will not adhere to one to another as iron does not mix with clay. And eventually the Roman Empire falls. Now, he says, but there's another part of your dream that still needs to be interpreted. It has to do with this stone. Head of gold, chest of silver, thighs of bronze, Legs and feet of iron and clay. But then there came a stone, not cut with hands. And that speaks of another kingdom. It's found in verse 44. And in the, in, in the days of these, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. Not a human kingdom, not one made with hands. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall, look at this, never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. And this is the interpretation of the stone and the kingdom that Daniel's describing right here is the kingdom of God. Now, let me just jump ahead just for a second. Move over to chapter 7. Because I want to show you how all this works out. I'm going to, just for the sake of clarity and explanation, I think that this will be important because he says there's going to be the kingdom of God that shall not be destroyed. When will all this happen? Well, look at this. Daniel 7 and verse 13. Daniel says this. I was watching in the night visions. And behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And then to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is, look at this, an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, the one which shall not be what? Destroyed. Destroyed. That's the kingdom you saw, O king. The stone crushing the others. Now go back to Daniel chapter 2. Now the question is, when is this new kingdom going to come into being? Babylon, kingdom 1. Persia, kingdom 2. Greece, kingdom three. Roman Empire, kingdom four. God's kingdom, 
that seems to come right after the Roman kingdom. Is that what happened? In a sense it did. Because Jesus was born and he was born the king. And he came and he preached and he says, repent. The kingdom of God is what? At hand. And when Jesus came, lived, died on the cross, was raised and seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, he inaugurated the kingdom of God. Not in its fullness, but it got started at that point. And then the scripture says, in Daniel 7, and then one day he's going to come on the clouds. And he's going to set up God's kingdom on the face of the entire earth. And he's going to consummate that kingdom. And it's very interesting when you go to the book of Revelation, when he does that, the scripture seems to indicate that there has been, there has, there has come into being a revived Roman empire. And we'll get to that later on in the book of Daniel. But let me finish out the chapter, okay? Look at verse 45. Verse 45. It is much as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and it broke into pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. God has revealed to you, King, the dream, and he's revealed to me the interpretation. It is certain and it is sure. Now let's look at the results of Daniel's interpretation. Verse 46. We'll go through this quickly. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face. Now look, he hasn't spoken from verse 23 to verse 20 to verse 45. And when he hears all this, he's so taken back. He falls on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. Now, he doesn't do this because he thinks Daniel is a god, although he knows Daniel is God's prophet. He does this because Daniel has revealed the dream and the interpretation, and Daniel gets all the, all the rewards. He's going to get all the honor. And the king bows down, and he says, Oh, Daniel, I honor you. And they just pile on all the honors and rewards, and they give it to Daniel. Look at verse 47. Verse 47. And you know, the kings don't normally bow down. And we know that Nebuchadnezzar was a bad dude, right? So this shows you how humbled he was over this explanation. Now look at verse 47. Then the king answered Daniel and said, Number one, truly your God is the God of gods. Number two, he is also the Lord of what? Kings. I thought I was the big shot. I've got a master. Three, and he is a revealer of secrets. And here's how I know, since you could reveal this secret. And so he makes three major admissions there. Look at verse 48. Then the king promoted Daniel. So he was assistant undersecretary of somebody else, way down here in the line. He promoted Daniel and gave him many great, that means big ones, great gifts. And made him ruler over what? The whole province of Babylon. And so Daniel 
gets rewards. He becomes the governor of the region. And look at the end of verse 48. And chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon, he becomes the head wise guy. All the wise men, Daniel becomes the main man. Now, Nebuchadnezzar realizes that Daniel's power comes from God and that Daniel is not performing <clears throat> tricks like the other wise men, that Daniel is the real McCoy. Verse 49. Well, that's what the king did. Now look at verse 49. Also, Daniel petitioned the king. And he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. He doesn't forget his friends. But Daniel, he was set apart. He sat in the gate of the king. Which means he became Nebuchadnezzar's right-hand man. He had ultimate authority in the kingdom. Now, that's the dream, and that's the interpretation. Now, let me give you just very quickly a few lessons, and I'll just read these to you, and you can jot down a few words, and then we will close. Lesson number one. As I look at this passage, I come to a realization that even the most powerful man on earth, in this case it was Nebuchadnezzar, for us it could be President Bush, even the most powerful man on earth, when he's alone in a room by himself at night, oftentimes he's frightened. And he's terrorized what the future is going to be and what his future is going to be. We look at our powerful leaders and we look at these men and say, look how much power and authority he has. It's true, but these are tormented men for, for the most part. Everything is not as it appears in the press conference. <clears throat> this is a man who was tormented. So I'm going to say, except for those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, like President Bush, other world leaders are experiencing the same kind of torments that Nebuchadnezzar is experiencing. Okay, number two. I think this is an obvious lesson. God rules in human affairs. God rules in human affairs, even in godless governments. Right. It's a scary thought, isn't it? Well, actually, it's a comforting thought. He rules in human governments, even godless governments, and he has ways to speak to godless leaders. Amen. In this case, it was through a dream. Whether they realize that it's God, it's God or not. Nebuchadnezzar didn't know it was God that was speaking, did he? But it was God that was speaking. So God is involved in these governments, and he has ways to bring leaders to their knees. Amen. He brought this man to his knees. Okay? Next lesson. Here we discover how God uses Christians to influence people in high places. You might not know what's going on, but God has his people in the highest offices in the land and around the world, and he's influencing people like Muammar Gaddafi. You know, Muammar said, I'm going to give up all my weapons of mass destruction. What caused him to do that? Why did he do that? Something scared him, didn't it? And we'll say, we'll tell you what's scared him. The might of the United States of America. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> I'll tell you what's scared him. The Lord Jesus Christ scared him. 
Now, he may have used America, but it was God speaking to him, not our strong hand speaking to him. God has ways to get through to these people. And he has advisors in their courts that speak on his behalf. People in high places. Next, we discover how Christians should respond in the day of crisis. Here's Daniel and his friends, and there's a day of crisis. They're ready to be put to death. Now the wise men, when they were ready to be put to death, they cried out and appealed to the king. Spare us, spare us, spare us. Give us more time. But not Daniel. Time of crisis, he goes to prayer. And it's united prayer with other Christians. It's a group of Christians get together and they unite in prayer in a day of crisis. And then the final lesson, and this is the most important lesson, I guess, is that ultimately all the kingdoms, because this is the bottom line in the dream, all the kingdoms of this world will one day be destroyed. And only one will be standing. And that's the kingdom of God. Kings and kingdoms, Bill Gaither says, will all pass away. There's only one name that every knee shall bow to. In heaven, in earth, and even those under the earth, the Lord Jesus Christ, he's the king, and the kingdom of God is the only one that lasts forever. So we should be encouraged, no matter how bad things look, God is still in control. Amen. Now, I wish I could tell you that Nebuchadnezzar became a Christian at that point. But in the next verse, verse 1, you know what he does? He decides to build a statue. Just like the one in his dream. All of gold that represents him. He's got a big ego. And uh, he's not converted, but there's going to come a day when God will bring him to his knees once and for all. And he will submit to the one true God of heaven. Chapter 2 of Daniel will pick up with chapter 3 next week. Lord, we thank you for uh, this very important uh, passage that lays the groundwork for all the visions, the future visions, and the unveiling of the future that will occur in the book of Daniel. And uh, we needed this as a basis to understand the rest of the book, and so we thank you for that. And I know, Lord, that this has been uh, a lot of material that we've had to cover, and I ask that through your Spirit that you will help each one of us comprehend it, take it in, think about it, and realize that, indeed, you are the God who's in control of the affairs of this world. And Lord, we submit to you, and we say, yes, indeed, Jesus is King. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.